0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. On today's podcast, we have got you news from Liverpool, Manchester United, Juventus, Chelsea, West Ham, plus hero and villain... I mean, and with me as always is Duncan Castles, our recent transfer and general guru, we should say, as well, in all things football. Duncan, we're going to start um, with Liverpool's conundrum regarding how do you put a finger to plug the Van Dyke? Uh, I'm not sure um, even Dick Van Dyke could come up with an answer to that one. Uh, What we have learned, however, from our sources here, at transfer window HQ, is that uh, Dayo Pumacano, the RB Leipzig centre-half, is Liverpool's first choice in terms of a new centre-half to buy. Uh, He was the defender who Jurgen Klopp identified way before this summer's window as someone who should be coming in to Anfield to replace who, as we know, left the club in the summer. Um, interestingly, and also, I'm sure, ironic for the German head coach that he was not uh, given the player he wanted. Indeed, he was not given a centre-half at all. And now he finds himself without one of the best centre-backs in world football, probably for the rest of the season, given the ACL injury. Van Dijk suffered in that tackle from Jordan Pickford in the Merseyside Derby last weekend. There is a possibility that Liverpool could try and sign a out-of-contract centre-back, which would give them an option up until um, the January window opens on the 1st of next year, Um, something Duncan will discuss with us very shortly. Um, However, Duncan... uh, I think we are all in agreement that um, while this is a dreadful blow for Liverpool in their title defence, the fact is just under 10 weeks until the January window opens. And uh, what uh, we've been told here um, at the podcast is that Liverpool are already active in trying to get a deal done, which we'll see in new centre-back arrive on January the 1st. Therefore, in time for the um, very congested Aldi period um, run of games as well, then there's a slightly less downside to it for that reason. Um, Do you think they'll wait until January, Duncan, or do you think they might try and sign? Is there anyone out there, basically, uh, who's out of contract, who could be signed on an out-of-contract basis in the short term?
1: Don't think they'll be worried about doing something in January. Remember that uh, Van Dyke himself came in um, on actually was signed on the 27th or announced that he was signed the 27th of de- December, arrived on the 1st of January. So they've been happy to do a deal at that stage before. I think you're right um, to say that this is, I think, absolutely fundamental to Liverpool's season. I don't think there is a more important player in their system than Virgil van Dyke. Um, what Jurgen Klopp built uh, as a team that could win the Champions League and win the Premier League and win the Premier League by such a immense margin last season was dependent on uh, using two fullbacks, pushing high up the field, going one-on-one against the opposition attackers when in possession of the ball and trying to score goals. And to do that, you need a supremely uh, quick and a well positioned centre back and someone who's capable of recovering when uh, the opposition get the ball beyond those defenders and that was Virgil van Dijk. Um, they do not have a player in their squad who can uh, substitute for van Dijk and do what's required um, even in, in that area of, of, uh, of the tactics. They have a problem with the goalkeeper being injured, so they've got a, a, a less capable goalkeeper in terms of a, the, the sweeper-keeper uh, type of play that Alisson provides for them behind. Um, and, I, and I think if they try and play the way they have been playing without Van Dijk there, you will see um, the weaknesses of Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson as defensive full backs exposed. Um, they also have an issue that Joe Gomez is struggling and has been struggling for form for quite a while. And as you say, Jurgen Klopp wanted a new defender, a new centre-back in the summer window, didn't get that. So they're now effectively two centre-backs down, the, the one they let go in Dejan Lovren um, and the lack of replacement for him and their best centre-back, uh, the captain. So in principle, you could see that being resolved by signing two centre-backs on doing what you suggested, which is take an out-of-contract player now um, to give them another body uh, and to fit into the defence and then go for the top-class signing um, in January. I know Pimacano is the obvious candidate here, particularly in terms of the pace he has over the ground, but also the experience he has playing at the top level in Ger- Germany and at the top level in the Champions League, so although he's young, um, you're getting someone who would probably be more ready to to take on that massive role that Jurgen Klopp will need him to take on. One individual I think you should see as a potential candidate for an out-of-contract centre-back because there are very few high-quality out-of-contract centre-backs available would be Ezekiel Garay, who is, um was at Valencia last season actually suffered a an anterior cruciate ligament himself last season and but is now recovered from that and ready to play again um if you're looking for someone who has played Champions League football and and has top level experience and is free immediately then i think he's the strongest candidate but again that underlines the importance of bringing someone in now i think in Liverpool's consideration here, is that the scale of the injury is such that they have to think that they need this new centre-back in um, almost as a replacement for Van Dijk um, if the worst comes to the worst and he doesn't come back with the same pace he has at present. He's 29 years old. Um, This is not just an anterior cruciate ligament injury. When, When players damage their ACL, they get collateral damage in other areas of their knee. These are complex injuries. Um, it's telling that when Liverpool reported it themselves, they talked about him having injured ligaments rather than specifying the ACL. They have got put no date on the recovery period. You can get back from some ACL injuries in six months. There's a, an expedited recovery process, which can get players on the field quicker they do not come back to performance level. Performance level, if you talk to specialists, physiotherapists, people who've been, who've worked with footballers to get them back um, properly from these injuries, they will usually say you're looking at 18 months before you get back to the previous performance level. If you get back at all, I think in, in Van Dyke there's a particular concern because pace is so important to him and we've seen players of his age get complex knee injuries, with ACL being one component of it and taking up to two years to rebuild a game and having to learn to play a different game. You know, Radamel Falcao would be an obvious example. Um, the struggles he had at Manchester United and Chelsea, while well, he was getting back from his ACL injury and and taking a long time to get back to that same performance level and having to adapt his game to do that. Now, there's, there's lots of elements of Van Dijk's game that mean he... We'll certainly be able to play again and certainly be able to play at a high level but will he be able, the same player when he comes back even with that 18 months recovery period would have to be a question mark therefore if you're Liverpool you should be thinking we need a top defender in now um, if we're going to be buying a defender we buy one for the long term we hope we can pair him with Van Dijk when Van Dijk recovers um, but if Van Dijk doesn't recover properly then at least we have a top centre back in who can fill the roles van dyke played in the team and return to the tactical system that's been so successful for us um and look we, we can't talk about this injury without saying that what jordan pickford did in that game was horrendous um that was the definition of a dangerous tackle um for that tackle not to be punished in any way by the officiating team in that match is a travesty, particularly when you you have supposedly the best referee in English football, Michael Oliver, in charge, particularly when you have a VAR system. Um, so video overview, not Oliver, not his linesman, not the VAR intervened to take action against what was a clear red card defence and which has cost Um, Liverpool, their most important player, probably for the rest of the season. Um, And some people would say that is likely to be um, Jordan Pickford's biggest contribution to Merseyside football this season in terms of the way he's been playing as a goalkeeper for Everton recently. But uh, it's a very bad reflection of English football that that is allowed to happen and that is allowed to go unpunished.
0: Interesting, Duncan, that Jamie Carragher, former Liverpool captain, has been very vocal uh, by saying that he doesn't believe his former club will retain the Premier League title without the services of Van Dijk. uh, Although they will give themselves a chance to do so if they buy a first class centre back in the January window. He also made some interesting comments um, regarding how he doesn't believe that any player goes out intentionally to hurt another player and was defending Pickford's tackle, as you were just describing. Um, However, he himself has a little bit of history, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, when Carragher was saying this, he, he, he said, I've had my leg broken, I nearly broke Nanny's leg. These things happen, unfortunately, in football. I don't think anyone goes out deliberately to hurt someone. This was a 2011 um, match in which basically Nani was at the peak of his powers for Manchester United. Um, a period in which he'd been voted Player's Player of the Year at Manchester United and um, was kind of stepping into that role as as Cristiano Ronaldo's successor and and um, the most one of the most dangerous players in the in the Premier League. I. Actually interviewed um, Nani uh, a couple of times, and but uh, last interview was three or four years ago, and we were talking about the Premier League and the, the tackling, um, and ended up discussing that famous incident. And he told me that he he ended up with a hole in his in his leg, as he described it, and required five stitches in his leg. Um, uh, that Carragher hit him down. Um, to the side of his shin pad um, he had to go off in that game and uh, and I asked him whether uh, whether he thought Carragher had done it intentionally and he said yes of course it was intentional it was nearly my knee I was very lucky let's just say if it was a little bit on the side forget it my leg would have been gone um, and he, he was laughing about the incident um, in hindsight, and saying that you know you have to be able to deal with these things in the Premier League because the referees allow it that kind of challenge in the Premier League. And interestingly, Carragher himself a few a couple of years ago was talking with Gary Neville about that game and what had happened with Nani, and he, and he said he was moved from centre back to right back, and Ferguson immediately put Nani on the left wing to go directly up against Carragher, and Carragher decided that he wasn't going to let Nani past him. He was going to get tight to him and uh, either get the ball or or take him down if he, if he uh, wasn't able to stop him legally. And he, he says the ball bounced before he went into the challenge and that's why he ended up hitting Nani. Um, but I think almost as interesting was the way he explains how he avoided getting a red card because he said he was on favourable terms with the referee Phil Dowd he said, I got Phil Dowd on his own, had a word with him, and we came to some sort of a deal. Um, which again, I think tells you a bit, a good bit about the problems of English football that that players can get involved in challenges like that, can you know, cripple, I suppose you could use it, that phrase, at least uh, in the short term, take the most uh, most important opponent out of the match And then sweet talk the referee into saying he's beaten me with skills. I didn't mean to hurt him and and remain on the pitch yourself. And while you'd like to think that English football has progressed since 2011 and that kind of thing, it's impossible to get away with now. We have the evidence that absolutely it's possible to get away with it because Jordan Pickford has... In his case, I probably, I think it probably wasn't intentional. I think he's just um, he's gone into a heavy challenge without thinking, um, but he has endangered an opponent. He's taken him out for months, possibly never have his career reach uh, the same capacity of of uh, speed and play again. Um, and he gets not even a foul given against him, not a yellow card, not a red card. It's left by the supposedly the best referee in the English game.
0: It was certainly a strange one, and even more strange that it wasn't reviewed by VAR. Um, For some reason, there is a suggestion that the VAR didn't actually realise he was um, entitled to review the tackle because play had stopped um, with the offside, um, which is even more bizarre because if any violent conduct or conduct which uh, endangers another player's safety occurs regardless of the balls in play or not, is automatically considered for action against the player who is um, guilty of the original challenge. So, um, and yet another flaw in the um, VAR uh, technology stroke rulings um, that we will talk about in our Hero and Villains section later in the podcast. Uh, Liverpool, as we discussed, are obviously in the market for centre back now in the January window. We're gonna bring in news now that West Ham United, who um resisted the temptation to sell Declan Rice to Chelsea in the summer window. Chelsea and Frank Lampard, who uh is desperate to have a commanding centre back, even though uh they did sign Thiago Silva from on a freedom of contract from Paris Saint-Germain, still wants to have uh, a younger, uh, very, very um, commanding player to organise his defence. Faults, of course, seen yet again and exposed by the game last weekend uh, against Southampton when they were in commanding positions on three occasions and on uh, on all occasions conceded goals, including one in added time, to mean they lost two points. They've now shipped 62 goals in 43 league games, which is the third worst record in the Premier League over the past season Um, and, of course, the start of this season. Uh, So not very good um, for Chelsea. But West Ham, to their credit, have um, offered Declan Rice and his representatives the chance to... Uh, come and discuss an upgrade in his current deal. Now, Duncan, his current deal um, actually was extended um, in December 2018 until 2024. Now, my understanding is that the upgrade itself will not necessarily be an extension of that contract because obviously that is already long-term, plus I understand there's a one-year option on both sides to extend to 2025. What they will do is offer them a pay rise and better terms and bonuses uh, in order to try and keep Chelsea at bay uh, in terms of any move in January. I'm not sure that it's necessarily going to work um, in terms of Declan Rice's ambitions, but um, given West Ham's, uh, the the criticism they come under generally, their transfer policy and everything else, it does seem like a positive move on their part with regards to uh, ensuring that, well, first of all, the player is enticed to stay. But I suppose as well, of course, an upgraded contract means they can ask for more money for Rice if Chelsea do come knocking again in January.
1: Well, they make it more expensive for Chelsea because they will have tied him down to a new contract and they will have already increased his wages. So Chelsea will have to at least match those and. Typically, you would you would better a player's wages when you're you're taking them in a situation like that. I think it's interesting that it looks like we will have both Liverpool and Chelsea in the market for a top centre back in January. Um, I I think it's amazing that Chelsea are in this position where they are throwing away points, throwing away a two goal lead against a strong Premier League opponent, Southampton, conceding three again but more importantly that that Frank Lampard is going into a game with Kurt Zuma, Andreas Christensen and Kepa as his central three in defence when he's been asking for upgrades and in the centre of his defence essentially since he got into the club Um, and as soon as he was able to uh, to buy again Last January, once the the transfer window ban was lifted, he's emphasised to Marina Granovskaya that that area of the team was of fundamental importance. There is ample evidence in terms of the defensive statistics from last season of how necessary it was to change. Um, You see it again this season, okay, they've been unlucky with the injury uh, to Mendy, which forced Kepa back into the first team against Southampton. But it's it's very, very hard to compete for the English title when you don't have a reliable uh, central defence. Liverpool are about to find that out and we'll see how much the quality of their attack can compensate for missing uh, your best defenders. But they've already conceded 13 goals in the Premier League this season, which is the highest goals against Tally equals West Bromwich Albion in, in these early stages. Um, what we can say is that, that that injury to Van Dijk, coupled with the other problems Liverpool have, has opened this Premier League title race up in a way I don't think anyone could have expected. Um, let's see what the two teams do in the January market to solve those problems and, and to uh, to try and go for the title in, in those circumstances. Whether there is one, I guess we can say there is one um, international centre-back that's available, um, which is... Phil Jones um, on the market. And I believe you can tell us how much he's being offered to other Premier League clubs for um, in recent weeks.
0: Indeed, Duncan. I will just want to share something with you as well, though, because I was speaking to someone on the Chelsea coaching staff after that uh, 3 3 draw with Hampton. And uh, one well known wag, who I'm sure some Chelsea fans will immediately identify uh, when told that the club were sending Kai Havertz. Uh, responded by saying, oh, brilliant, it's time we got another centre-half. Uh, <laughs> even though he knew Phil well, that was not the case. But yes, Phil Jones. Um, remarkably, um, during conversations in the window which has just closed, um, I've spoken to uh, various people regarding uh, Manchester United's uh, transfer policy into selling players, and... In trying to recruit a new centre back for Ole or Solskjaer, um, they were offering Phil Jones as par exchange uh, to different clubs uh, with targets that they had in mind uh, with regards to bringing into Old Trafford. Um, however, when asked what they looked at Phil Jones' value um, in terms of you know, weighing up any kind of swap plus cash deal, uh, the value was £18 million. Pounds they put on Phil Jones, which for a player who has not appeared in a Premier League match since January this year, does seem a little over the top. But then again, um, Duncan, as you uh, reported a a while ago, they did give him a new contract. um, And this is kind of the policy which Edward Wood pursues. uh, Rather than lose a player for free and get him off the the wage bill, he would rather give them a new contract, an increased pay grade, and try and sell them for way over the value that actually the player is worth.
1: Yeah, £80 million for a player who's played who played two Premier League games last season, 45 minutes against Sheffield United before being substituted in a 3-3 draw, and 90 minutes against Burnley in a 2-0 defeat at Old Trafford. Um, it's a remarkable valuation for a player who Manchester United subsequently excluded from their Champions League squad and will go into tonight's game against Paris Saint-Germain because of uh, injuries to Harry Maguire and Eric Bailly with just two um, experienced specialist centre-backs available in Victor Lindelof and Axel Thunzebi. And um, I think it's interesting to see how Solskjaer sets his team up in Paris, whether he goes with those two uh which would be you know a very inexperienced center back going into one up against one of the best attacks in european football with neymar killian mbappe and uh, angel di maria um probably leading the line for paris saint-germain whether he goes for a back five which he often does in these circumstances and tries to play in the counter-attack um then does he move scott McTominay in there or play Luke Shaw as a left-sided uh, centre-back, which he has done before in these type of games to um, not particularly impressive uh, success. In fact, I think Shaw played against Paris Saint-Germain last season and uh, was caught out for uh, a goal playing as a left-sided centre-back. But uh, yeah, a big uh, I think a big problem for Solskjaer to solve. Um, in what is an important game, but at least he goes in off the back of a 4-1 victory um, and uh, a change in fortunes in the Premier League on Saturday.
0: Well, Duncan, you called this on the podcast last week um, when having reported very accurately that Bruno Fernandes had expressed himself very forthrightly um, in the 6-1 defeat to Tottenham. And, of course, uh, you've received some sticks since then from uh, some of our podcast fans regarding um, Fernandes Riposte, in which uh, he gave well on international duty for Portugal. Um, but you did say on Friday's podcast that it was uh, going to be a call for Solskjaer whether or not he handed a captaincy to Bruno um, regarding um, the game at the weekend, as it turned out, um, with all the aplomb of the great showman. Uh, he did it, uh, unbeknown to Fernandez uh, during the news conference ahead of the game against Paris Saint-Germain. And uh, it seemed just a little bit staged. I don't know. Um, what was your take on it?
1: Well, I did say on Friday that he had a decision to make about the captaincy if he decided to drop harry Maguire and obviously kept Maguire in and Maguire performed well against newcastle scored a goal um it i guess it worked from the the, the point of view of bolstering Maguire. um there was debate over whether you take him out of the firing line there it didn't work from the sense that he was um, carrying a, a small muscular injury and has aggravated that and is now out of the Paris Saint-Germain game and may miss their match, um, important Premier League match at the weekend. But we, we kind of talked through the options, which was to make Paul Pogba captain, which I thought would be unlikely given that he chose Axel Toonzevi as captain um, instead of Pogba. Uh, in a league cup tie last season and um, upset pogba with that decision he'd stripped david de gea of the captaincy last season Um, the other option would be marcus rashford who he has overlooked um, in giving the captaincy to to bruno fernandez and i said if you wanted to make a statement and uh and kind of underline that the relationship between him and Fernandes was strong, then one of the ways to go would be to make him captain. Now, if you want to make a statement, then the way to do it is to announce it in a press conference without letting the player know himself in advance and have the player sitting beside you in the press conference so that his reaction can be seen by the assembled media. I'm not saying that's what Ole or Solshar's intention was, but certainly that's what happened. He did not tell Fernandes in advance and he did it in a press conference. Um, As we discussed on Friday, there are repercussions to doing these things. And um, as we talked about on Friday, Bruno Fernandes has a history at his previous clubs of um, being a forceful figure, of coming into conflict with managers, with players, with the administration. Um, If you talk to people who know him in Portugal, they'll say that he always strives to be the leader in the group and he always strives to take power. Um, And they were suggesting that if Solskjaer decides to make him captain now in these circumstances, then he would be ceding a a degree of power um, to him, which could be dangerous going forward. Now, that might not be the case at all. Perhaps Bruno Fernandes will respond well to it um the relationship will be strengthened because of it and all will move on happily going forward um but certainly talking to the people in Portugal who know Bruno Fernandes they suggest that this is a risk that Solskjaer has taken and giving given him the captaincy um, but then he's in a position where he is under pressure and he needs to get results and and perhaps as a manager that is a time when you take risks to try and turn things around and and certainly the bruno fernandez was instrumental in uh in getting that victory against newcastle at the weekend a great finish to a goal i think that where the, the greatest credit has to go to donny van de Beek and the way that he held control of of possession and and opened the play up with a with a pass to um allow Rashford and, and Bruno Fernandez to score. Also, I think significant credit to Dav De Gea for the the save he made from Callum Wilson um earlier in the second half, which would have put Newcastle United two-one ahead and and for all the uh, the improvement in Manchester United's performance at Newcastle, you wonder if they would have got any better than the draw had David De Gea not made that save, which was, you know, absolutely typical of De Gea's qualities and inability to say to make stops like that that other goalkeepers cannot make.
0: Well, we like others, Duncan, have been fulsome in um our criticism and deconstruction of Manchester United's start to the season. And it's true that there were shaky moments, but they did seem kind of, you know, very fluid and unstoppable in those last sort of 10 plus added time minutes. And the, the the breathtaking counter-attacking and the finishing as well, Rashford's goal, uh Fernandez's goal, um, it, it did speak of a team which, you know, when they get going and when they're given their head and the, the opportunity to get in behind, are capable of producing, you know, quite breathtaking
1: football. We've, we've watched Manchester United do this throughout the time under Ole or Solskjaer. The, the the system that works best for them is is when they defend and they use their pace on the counter-attack. And, it, and it's the system that has given him a lot of results against stronger teams and may prove effective against Paris Saint-Germain tonight. Um, but then you should be able to score uh, thrilling counter-attacking goals when you have that much pace in attack. And players like van de Beek and Pogba um, and Bruno Fernandes providing uh, the passes to those players. Um, we know that games like this, if you get the goal, if you score with three minutes of normal time to play in a tight match, um, and make it 2-1, you can score two goals rapidly if the other team open up to you. And I think Steve Bruce was was saying that they were naive and they made mistakes in the way um, they defended for the, the latter period of that game. Um, you The judgment we make about Solskjaer's management and the performances at the club is, as a whole, um, and it's based on inside information, of how he deals with players, how he trains them, how he prepares them, the tactics he uses. And, and it's also reflected in the overall set of results during his period. So 66 points, one of the lowest totals Manchester United have ever had in the Premier League, manages to get third place, um, requires a record number of Premier League penalties to get there, hasn't won any trophies, knocked out in three semifinals. Um, yeah, you know, If you strip everything away and take the Laguna Solskjaer period and compare it to previous Manchester United uh, periods, uh, if you slotted it into any of the latter, the Premier League years of Sir Alex Ferguson and asked whether that would be acceptable for a Manchester United team, the, the clear answer is it wouldn't be. Um, and one good result or a sequence of good results as they had um, post lockdown and I think that gets overemphasised as well if you look at the games they played and the teams they beat by um, large numbers, it was for a limited period of time and then they went back to um, the m- mediocre play and being beaten by Chelsea, being beaten by um, Sevilla uh, and then the start to the Premier League season which Solskjaer says is simply to do with the lack of preparation time and a lack of sharpness. We'll see. We'll see if, if they go back to that post-lockdown football and they are able to produce it for not, not just for three or four weeks um, in a artificial situation post-COVID, but for months, weeks after weeks after weeks to the point where they are competitors for the Premier League title and winning silverware again because that is the only realistic target a Manchester United side should ever have. Well, as always,
0: we will look forward to disseminating um, the performance of Manchester United against Paris Saint Germain in Friday's podcast this week. It's got all the hallmarks of being quite an interesting contest, so let's hope for the best on that one. Coming around to a subject, Duncan, that we have reported on extensively on the Transfer Window podcast. And in particular, uh, our friend Roger Mitchell has um, shed amazing amounts of insight and light upon the potential formation of a European super league. Uh, Seems there are reports today that the um, American investment bank, JP Morgan, are willing uh, to invest around $6 billion dollars to fund the start-up of what's being called a European Premier League interestingly enough and of course Manchester United and Liverpool along with other English Premier League clubs are in the queue to be part of that although I would suggest that Liverpool and United would always be included anyway given their tradition and their record in winning the European Cup. Now. The fact that it's come up now, it does not seem to me to be a coincidence, Duncan, um, after the failure of Project Big Picture to gain any support. Indeed, it was even voted down by its two founding um, researchers in United and Liverpool at the Premier League meeting last Wednesday. Uh, It does seem to me that, yeah, we talked about this on Friday. This is just the opening salvo. This is a discussion point where you know it's effectively grown ground zero for the English Premier League to restructure uh, clearly the abolition of the League Cup the EFL Cup um, in order to provide more space for extended fixture list for European competitions is key to giving uh, the clubs who play in any Super League or Premier League as it's being called now uh, in Europe, uh, more scope and also, of course, more income. It's hardly a surprise that in the period of this particular pandemic, when clubs are being deprived of very lucrative max day revenue as well as liquidity, that a competition like this, a proposal like this, is being in some ways fast tracked in order to provide extra funding to the elite, because that's exactly what they depend upon. So the proposal, Duncan, is, as we know, and as Roger has talked to us about, is that there'll be um, between 16 and 20 clubs involved from at least five of the big European leagues, France, Spain, England, Germany, and Italy. And that, that would start potentially within a year to 18 months, depending upon, of course, the authorisation and endorsement of football's governing bodies. Now, we know that UEFA have been fighting uh, as well as um, trying to negotiate a compromise position with the European Club Association in order to make the Champions League format as it currently is more attractive and more profitable. However, we also know that FIFA are hawkishly waiting in the wings to take up administration of any new league, which, of course, if they endorse the administration of it, then there'd be no recourse for UEFA in terms of legal or commercial or anything else. Seems, as I said, Duncan, it's not a coincidence that it's been brought up or it's not been, has been leaked now after Project Big Picture um, uh, at least opened the door for negotiations and serious discussion of the restructuring in English football. Um, how quickly do you think, do either the clubs want this to happen or are we looking at simply a long negotiation period where things are being set up, but at the same time, perhaps Uh, Some of the investment, the seed capital, if you like, that's going to come from um, both potentially, as I said, JP Morgan, but also um, uh, private equity and venture capitalism uh, around Europe, as well as as the possibility of other investors like nation states, um, will be able to allow these elite clubs to continue not just to survive but to be able to spend and thrive
1: it depends on the club so juventus are very much Andrea agnelli um, who's um, prominent in the eca are very much in favor of getting some kind of european super league in place as quickly as possible florentino perez at real madrid has been talking to fifa about this um the The reluctance or the question mark has been over the Premier League clubs because the Premier League has the greatest revenue gener- generating capacity by itself. Therefore, can you get the Premier League clubs to join in with this European Super League? If you look at what COVID has done to the other major leagues, you can see where the driving forces are. So Barcelona had a horrendous window um, where they they end up um, trying to negotiate the the loan which they didn't want to do to Manchester United of Ousmane Dembele on the final day in order to clean some wages off their books and and uh, and get themselves closer to the La Liga um, financing requirements. Real Madrid don't buy a single player in order to save money for next summer. In France, um, the major broadcast partner has stopped paying the money they are due to the French clubs on their broadcasting contracts and this is after French football shut down and and had no revenue for the, the latter half of last season. Um, across the board, apart from England, transfer spend contracted hugely. If you're Barcelona or Real Madrid, then you're probably getting seriously concerned about how you retain your advantage, competitive advantage you've had over the English clubs of being able to sign the best players in the world, because the one thing the Premier League has never managed to do is get the best players in the world at the peak of their careers. But I think there's a possibility that will change if the financial framework doesn't um, change with a a, a new structured league or doesn't repair itself um, post-COVID rapidly. And Kylian Mbappe could be the test case here. In normal circumstances, you would expect Mbappe, who, as we broke in the transfer podcast a month ago, is um, planning to leave Paris Saint-Germain at the end of this season. You would expect him to go to Barcelona or Real Madrid. That's where the top players in the world go to. However, he likes Liverpool. As you reported last weekend, he's putting a, a, a kind of interview process around the Suter clubs and one of those is, is Manchester United um we'd expect manchester city to be involved i think there's there's a real possibility that a premier league club could secure mbappe in this financial climate um as for what's happening with with american finance um being proposed as the the capital for a european super league that is administered by fifa yeah we talked about all of this Um, with Roger Mitchell on the podcast over a year ago. Absolutely what's happening is what he predicted would happen. Um, That there'd be a battle between FIFA and UEFA to gain control over this new league. That the new league is inevitable. That we are going to have a European Super League because the economics of football are pushing in that direction. It's a matter of when, not if. And, you know, as we discussed when talking about Project Big Picture, can the Premier League clubs restructure English football in a way in which they can have the European Super League cake and remain eating from the the Premier League table, which is what Big Picture was set up to do. You can see the structure there where they reduce the number of games in the Premier League, where they... um, allow themselves more money from pay-per-view television, where they get rid of the League Cup, they get rid of the Community Shield, that they could potentially run a team in the European Super League and run another team in the Premier League, be competitive in both and and keep taking broadcast revenues from both leagues. Um, This is predictable. And I think it's inevitable that we get the Super League. It's just a question of how it's structured and who operates it and who finances it.
0: I agree with you, Duncan. It's inevitable. Um, But at the same time, I do think it's the case that the clubs, certainly the big six in England, would certainly, as you put it, like to be feeding from the Premier League table as well as um, taking part in in any new European Super League Uh, and therefore their income would uh, be exponentially increased uh, in terms of uh, broadcasting and if you think about a pay-per-view game between Manchester United and Real Madrid or indeed Manchester United and Liverpool, um, the club's value will also increase because the amount of money that they can generate in cash liquidity from those particular fixtures. So it is incredible what the potential is, and that this is where we're headed. And I don't see that this particular uh, train is going to be stopped in terms of um, loading on the gravy. So, um, yeah, I think uh, we've got a situation now where there are wheels in motion that will not be... Um, stopped in any way uh, their momentum uh, because this is what will be dictated in football's future. On the subject of Juventus, who you mentioned, Duncan, with regards to Andrea Agnelli, uh, the club's uh, president, um, some interesting information regarding their, um, I suppose he's he's head of football operations, uh, Paratici, and his future, because despite the fact that uh, he once was the golden boy um, of the cheering club, uh, he seems to be uh, looking slightly dodgy in his position regarding recent transfer uh, business and how it's been viewed.
1: Yeah, a chief football officer at Juventus, effectively the sports director. Sorry, yes. Um, he, I can tell you that. Juventus are looking for a replacement for Paratici and have started the process of talking to potential candidates. Um, final decision is not made. There's a possibility that they will change before the, the January transfer window, which is obviously is, is pretty close at, at present. Um, reasons for that, he's been 10 years at Juventus. He was instrumental in convincing Andrea Agnelli to change the direction of the club in terms of Um, Dismissing Max Allegri, um, appointing uh, Maurizio Sarri as his replacement, um, changing and making a number of uh, big transfer deals. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, the most obvious of those, but I think more importantly, a number of deals for players that they've taken and paid very high wages to. One example uh, just in this last summer would be the, the deal the sort of FFP avoidance deal they did in swapping Miralem Pjanic with Artur from Barcelona um, where they ended up paying Artur an immense wage, um, giving him one of the highest wages in the club uh, in order to get him in to facilitate that deal Um, and that was something that Paratici was intimately involved in and uh, I'm told has gone down badly at Juventus. They've already effectively removed some of his powers by inserting um an individual called federico carabini into the sporting director process um, and uh it does look as like that he will be available for other european clubs should they want to hire him um, before too long
0: um i hear tim sherwood's available um <laughs> if Juventus were interested uh you know on the day earth finally ends um however <laughs> we shall see i'm sure he'll make sure that uh, he contacts them um via fax or something like that uh to let them know that uh, he's available for employment this being the um first part of the week of course uh means that we have now wind up on our hero and villain section um i'm going to leave you with the villain first i think um duncan because uh we've already touched on it but i think it deserves a little bit more um in terms of detail so uh, please give us your villain of the last few days of football
1: i think there are a few candidates and a few candidates around one incident but as you were saying um The issues with VAR have become predictably ludicrous. Um, We have these excuses being given every time uh, VAR gives a a, a clearly incorrect decision. We have yet another big game um, being decided by uh, marginal offside calls that the technology is not actually capable of implementing. And another big game in which uh, a a major player gets injured and and VAR doesn't intervene. But I think this comes down to Michael Oliver. Ultimately, he must be the villain of the game because he had a view of that tackle. He's supposed to be the best referee in English football. He took no action, um, allowed it to go completely unpunished, failed in his duty to protect the players. And I think he's just one in a long list of top English referees who tend um, to follow a pattern of being lenient on uh, aggressive play and uh, cost us top players uh, or entertaining football because of it. You've got the Howard Webb uh, World Cup final, probably the worst World Cup final of all time, certainly the worst one I've seen where he allowed the, the Dutch um, to kick uh, Spain to pieces. You've got Mark Clattenburg his uh, successor who had that same laissez-faire style of refereeing and actually um, cites the battle of, of, uh, of the bridge in which Tottenham and Chelsea um, could have had multiple red cards uh, in that game and, and ended up fighting on the pitch as one of his top matches as a referee because he felt that he, um, he did such a good job allowing it to flow and, and preventing... Mark Klattenberg being the um, the centre of attention by, uh, by sending the wrong player off at, at the wrong time. Um, so Michael Oliver's part of that pattern. I don't think he's as bad as as Webb and Clattenburg yet, but English football, English football refereeing really has to look at itself very carefully when they have that kind of officiating being rewarded with the top games in England and with the top games in European and world football, that, that being the, the, the individual they put forward to FIFA and UEFA as their best referee.
0: When does a referee get to give himself a red card? <laughs> There's
1: a question for all the listeners.
0: Please uh, respond to us via the usual social media channels, as you know. Um, my hero, ironically, is also a villain. That's because it's Dean Smith, manager of Aston Villa, who has led his team, from being relegation candidates not so long ago in the um, staged and delayed season uh, of 1920 to four wins out of four at 12 points. Uh, fantastic uh, performances. Of course, that 7 2 victory over Liverpool as well, and providing entertaining football as well. Um, and I think, you know, we should celebrate some of the guys who uh contribute to our um national game and as well as our entertainment value uh as well as uh, the bigger names who we often pick out as our heroes. So Dean Smith, you have got the Transfer Wonder Podcast Hero of the Week.
1: A major a major beneficiary of VAR, if you remember, Dean Smith. <laughs> in avoiding that relegation. Indeed, indeed, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, VR, I'm
0: sure, will feature very heavily in the weeks and months to come. But anyway, uh, that's us for today. If you liked what you heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. You can subscribe to the Transfer the podcast on YouTube as well, of course, and turn on all notifications. And please join this discussion with us here on At Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on Twitter, of course, I'm on at Garbo SJ, Duncan's at DuncanCastles. Join the debate, keep it going, and we will be back with you later this week. Until then, be safe, stay well, and thanks for listening.